Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. Uh, this is the podcast for the Report 26, which has data until March of uh, 2020. Today, we have a, a special guest with us, Dr. Melissa Hinch from Ashoks, and we are going to talk about her experience, and she's willing to share with us our, her perspectives on mycoplasma pneumonia elimination, diagnostics, and prevention from uh, uh, in, sow, in breeding herds. Hi, Melissa. Hi. It's uh, great to be here today. I hope to help provide you a little bit of perspective on some of what we do within the system as well as our work on mycoplasma. Excited to have you in the podcast today and uh, excited to, to talk about mycoplasma and other stuff. Um, but first, we're going to start, as usual, in the first page. We talked about first detection by PCR. Giovanni Edison, the, the summary of this page here, long story short, is everything is following the predicted bands. So in other words, first detection by PCR is within what was expected for this time of the year in all age categories, right? That's correct, Dr. Linares. The, the forecast is following those predicted levels. We see some detection in adult cell farm that was above the encounter for the month of March since 2013. And this level of detection that was uh, that we see during 2020 is not surprising by our advisory group since this is expected by the climate condition that we have during winter months. And cell farms continue to see some rebreaks there is the virus that continues residing in some uh, herds. And additionally to that, there is some perception of some strains like the 174, 184s, uh, whatever, that they are seeing that the virus is keeping resilient in the herds for, and taking a longer time to eliminate, contributing for these levels of detection. Melissa, what are your take home from this page and, and, uh, and also more specifically on this perception that some are sharing that some some birds isolate uh, most of them sharing those uh, either 174 or 184 cut pattern a perception that they are more resilient in the sense that they it's taking longer to eliminate them from infected breeding herds um, yeah I would definitely agree with that and that they do seem to take much longer from an elimination standpoint. The other thing I would throw on there, and I, I think it's going to correlate to a little bit of our discussion on mycoplasma as well, is better monitoring tools. We are doing more processing fluids than we ever have, and so we are finding these uh, staying out in the herds much longer than expected because we're testing to a much higher level. We're identifying a much lower prevalence um, than we ever used to be able to identify. So I, I think you couple that with some, some more resilient viruses that uh, it's certainly taking longer to eliminate and we're having win winter breaks drag on into March. I, I, so I'm not surprised to see these numbers at all. Mm -hmm. So just a combination of virus isolates with ability to persist longer and better detection tools in those, those, uh, those viruses, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So moving on to the coronaviruses page, detection of, of, corona, of uh, PED, Delta coronavirus, and TGE by PCR. Uh, similar to what we reported in the first page, the detection patterns here are following the, the predicted band, so no signals at, at this point. Anything else uh, uh, 
worth to mention, Giovanni? No, that's it. Uh, the only point that if you look for the first two charts in top, we have more number of cases being tested for PED and Delta coronavirus. And this basically we have been discussing in previous reports that there is some change in the field, field conditions where some systems are monitoring more when to finish animals. So that was expected to be occurring at this moment since there is this change in uh, observed over there. Melissa, any additional comments on this, uh, on, on coronavirus detection by PCR? Uh, no, there's, uh, it's, it's really within expected amount for time of year. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we personally have, have had a handful of those breaks, uh, not unexpected relative to just time of year and timeline. Um, and, mm -hmm. and there is a significant amount out there that are now starting to test and finishing and monitor. Uh, you know, again, tying into we're, we're monitoring more often, we're testing a little bit more often uh, because we, mm -hmm. we now have a more endemic pathogen where we can actually go understand where that prevalence is um, and, and how we can impact that. So that's where some of that finishing testing comes from. I see. All right. So moving on to the mycoplasma hyaluronic page where it reports detection by PCR testing. And uh, the, the detection curve is also following the, the predicted pattern, pattern for, for this time of the year. The only detail here that uh, it was expected for mycoplasma to increase the detection between weeks 15 and 20 of the year. And we are at the weeks, uh, seeing data here until weeks, week 13, and we already seen some indication of uh, uh, increased detection still within the band, uh, the, the, the forecast band, but uh, with uh, some trend for detection here, especially from samples coming from cell farms. Uh, right, Giovanni? Yeah, that's correct. And this increased detection was observed basically by increased testing in suckling piglets. And what the advisory group has pointed out was that uh, the production systems are choosing between eliminate the agents from the herds or establish positive immunized herds to, to survive with the agents. Either way, more monitoring has been done to take science-driven decisions to choose the path that they prefer. And that's certainly something new, right, Melissa? And testing more uh, uh, frequent, frequent testing of uh, suckling pigs for mycoplasma. Yeah, yeah, that would be a, a little bit more of a newer development. Again, as we improve our testing capabilities um, on what sample we're using and how we're doing it, uh, you're seeing a lot more detection. Uh, we're actually able to do tracheal bronchial swabs um, on a much broader population uh, more consistently. And, and as systems continue to choose whether they either stabilize or eliminate, uh, that all, both of those would, would require a fair amount of testing to be successful. And, and so as we improve the way we test, yeah. we detect it quite, quite a bit more. And you guys have been particularly or relatively to the rest of the industry, at least to the folks that we've been talking with, you guys have been uh, relatively aggressive on mycoplasma elimination, right? Really moving to eliminate mycoplasma from the herd as opposed to leaving and controlling. What has, motiv what has uh, been the motivation behind that decision to eliminate mycoplasma in the system from breeding herds? 
yeah, that's correct. We've been very aggressive with it. Um, I, I would say almost to the exclusion of, of all else, uh, we, we have eliminated in an, almost all of our herds um, or some would mm -hmm. be on that pathway. Um, and really it comes down to a financial decision. Um, mycoplasma is something that we've been able to very consistently control um, as well as keep out of our herds. And so if that's a piece that we, and a lever we can go pull in that PRDC complex, uh, it's one that we can be very successful in. Um, we've, uh, we've looked at it from about four to $5 a pig uh, when you couple mortality, culls, med cost, average daily gain and feed conversion, uh, that four to $5 a pig is absolutely real. Um, and, and so we've got that and we've got the tools in our toolbox to successfully eliminate it. Uh, that's four to five bucks a pig I can go after and I can eliminate from my PRDC complex. I may not be as successful on managing influenza, for example, but if I can manage a, a mycoplasma, I'm, I'm absolutely going to go after that one. And I, I tell you, we, we do feel like that four to five mm -hmm. has been real. We absolutely have captured that return on investment because it, it isn't free to do a, an elimination program, nor is it free to stabilize your herds. Um, it, it does cost money and time and a, a lot of people from the execution standpoint, but it, it absolutely does pay back. And that $45 per pig is from a uh, winter market. That's correct, yes. Um, and, and we you know from a system standpoint would own all of our pigs all the way through. Uh, there's a, obviously a lot of variability within the industry on, on how those pigs are managed and who owns what where um, and who's going to capture that. So a lot of how people are making that decision is obviously going to be based on how they're structured from a system standpoint and a sales standpoint on who's going to capture that four to five dollars per pig. Okay and so one of the when you when you go and uh, start a plan to eliminate a disease mycoplasma is, is no no different one of the key aspects is having a good diagnostic uh, uh, or a good monitoring tool to to differentiate between positive negative mycoplasma is not as straightforward as as some other uh, pathogens like uh, per so what can you share with us about what have you been using and how comfortable you are with uh, procedures to, die, to, to detect mycoplasma high uh, pneumonia in, the, in those herds undergoing elimination? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, and over the course of the years, I'll kind of take you through our, our pathway here. Originally, we would have been looking at um, utilizing laryngeal swabs, um, a, a sentinel program, for example, um, where you have a vaccine negative pig and you enter them in, into the herd to understand your status and uh, utilizing ELISA's, uh, and, and it was very, very cumbersome and, and the results were not consistent. Uh, we didn't understand it enough. And so we have now moved to um, exclusively deep um, tracheal bronchial swabs. Um, and so we are doing that um, and having much better consistent detection at an earlier stage. Um, so we would utilize those um, swabs both from an establishing a day zero if you're doing an elimination um, to understand mm -hmm. how quickly can I get my guilt population positive um, as well as understanding the sow herd status. So that's where you see within the report where we've had increases on sow herd testing, uh, that could be piglet testing, that could be gilts that are in the farm. Uh, we've been doing those swabs on all of them. Um, and then probably the other big change, I think from a testing standpoint has been on the back half of the closure. Uh, when you close a farm for a certain number of weeks, you throw a medication and a vaccination program on there, all meant to really knock that bug down 
Uh, there's been a lot of question on how long does it take to confirm whether we were successful or not. Uh, we have had farms go easily about 12 months um, of entering naives before we are able to detect it. And when we're using tracheal bronchial swabs, often if we're repeatedly testing, for example, every month on those elimination farms, uh, we will detect it before we've seen clinical signs in those gills. It, it is a very, very good diagnostic. Mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's been challenging, I think, for people to learn how to get it because it is a technical skill that you have to acquire and learn, but it's highly, highly effective once you can get there. And uh, and so, and how how do you use it? For for example, for purge, if we step back, it's uh, people. Most people work under the assumption that if you want to test a herd, a breeding herd, you go uh, for the suckling pig population. You test a subset of those for mycoplasma. Do you still need to test the the the, the sows? Or is it okay to to focus on the wing, the suckling pigs only? And if so, how many how many do you do you do you, you typically uh, sample to give you enough confidence that if everything is negative, you're good enough that it's uh, comfortable enough that uh, this is not there, the pathogen is not there. Yeah. So um, on a herd that's we're we're trying to detect it, typically we've gone for our best sample being gilts that have been on farm. Uh, for at least 90 days, ideally. Um, so these would be animals that we had confirmed negative prior to entry. Uh, either they're being received from a, a multiplication unit that is testing regularly, and then they would be tested prior to shipment. Um, and so we've got a, a negative animal, regardless of whether they're vaccinated, which most of ours would be vaccinated, uh, we would go after the gilts that have been entered into that herd. Um, and typically, uh, we can, we'll go for either a sample of 30 or 60. Uh, the true academic answer is, in order to really detect mycoplasma at a very low level, it's much more than 30 or 60 animals. Um, but we feel confident that if you take that as well as over time. So, for example, if you just completed elimination, you're going to wait about six months, and then you're going to go in quarterly and test 30 of those gilts that have now been in there for at least 90 days. So once a quarter, you go in and you take 30 gilts, um, and eventually, uh, if that farm does have any mycoplasma floating around, those are your first animals that will pick it up because they are truly negative. Uh, they may be vaccinated, but you will still absolutely pick it up from those. Let me see. And, and you mentioned about earlier about uh, testing some of the suckling pigs. In which situation do you sample those piglets? Uh, we've sampled suckling pigs when we're trying to determine true impact in wean to market. Um, if we're trying to make a decision on, for example, utilizing an antibiotic at weaning to control it, uh, because as you go through eliminations as well as stabilization, there is a, t a period of time where you may still be shedding into those wean pigs. Um, and, and if we can determine how much, if they are, for example, 50% or more positive, we're going to implement some sort of an intervention process there to manage the downstream mortality. Uh, so it really more so gives us a knowledge of what to expect in those pigs and how to go after it and wean the market from an intervention standpoint. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and if we go back a little bit on the disease elimination uh, procedure, you, you did mention about herd closure and uh, mass medication. Any, what are the other kind of, um, say, big picture about the disease elimination plan to get rid of mycoplasma from your breeding herd? Sure. So uh, we've had a lot of lessons learned on this. Um, the first one would be day zero. And what I mean by day zero is when you close a herd, 
um, you are going to ensure that all of that gilt population is 100% exposed uh, because you don't want a negative animal entered into a positive herd uh, and have her see it, for example, a month later. So establishing day zero uh, by means of exposing your gilt population and then testing them to ensure how long did it take them to go positive, uh, which can be variable depending on how, what method you use to expose and strain, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Typically it's four to six weeks, uh, but we will test very heavy to determine day zero. And then we utilize a combination of both time and medication. Um, and those can be extremely variable. There's no one size fits all. Uh, both from a closure time standpoint as well as a medication. Um, and then we would also utilize some vaccines in there. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer. You're going to go out mm -hmm. there in 50 different ways to eliminate the bug, both from a time or a medication standpoint. I think what's important on making those decisions is determining your tolerance for risk. What is your tolerance for risk of a failure? Um, and how much do you want to spend to do that? Um, I mean, we've got programs anywhere from 10 to $40 per sow. Uh, they've all either had successes or failures. Um, uh, on the more expensive side, both from a time and a medication standpoint, yes, you can increase your chances of success. Um, at the end of the day, even the ones where we have failed, uh, that ROI on the money that you spent is still there because you come off of a closure and a medication plan with a much more stable herd, even if you weren't successful. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of inner workings on there. And you've really got to determine what is the best fit scenario for both your system and the farm. And that's a good, that, that's a, uh, a great uh, uh, point that uh, maybe you didn't truly eliminate the, the pathogen for good, but if you economically stabilize the herd, right? If you, can, if you stabilize the herd enough, you, you reach an economic kind of elimination, at least for a while. How long does it take since the herd is 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 negative or or clinically stable to re get that return of investment back? Is it a year? Um, is it two? Uh, no, the return on investment is fairly rapid. Um, it, you know, it's it's obviously that four to five dollars per pig, and and how long that lasts. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. it can typically you're going to return that within the first six months. Um, it, it's pretty fast. Um, you, you don't need, because even if you fail, right, if you come back as positive between nine and 12 months post-closure, you still have all of those pigs on feed that are negative. And to be honest, that nine or 12 months post-closure, you're still weaning pigs at that point, even if you start to detect it at that point, at a very low prevalence. And so those pigs perform exceptionally well, as if they were almost mm -hmm. negative, even though you know you have a prevalence in those pigs. So you can capture that ROI fairly rapidly and then extend it even if you were not successful for a good 12 months post-closure uh, before you really start to see an increase in prevalence in the wean pig and, and therefore an impact in your finishing performance. So it's, it's a pretty long road as far as capturing that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's a good, good, great lesson. And how do you keep those herds negative? Once you go negative, now you have, uh, yeah, so once you eliminate the mycoplasma, now you, you, you want to make sure that they keep negative. What are the, your, your lessons on take-homes on biosecurity practices to keep the herd negative? 
so I'm a, I may, any good veterinarian would probably not be saying this right now, so I, I probably shouldn't, but knock on wood, we have had no lateral breaks in any of our sow farms. Um, we have had um, a fair amount where we had a, for example, a cheaper medication program and we were not successful on elimination, um, but we have not laterally broken, meaning brought any mycoplasma into the sow farms. It, it's not an easy bug to move, like you would think of from a, mm -hmm. a bird or a flu perspective. And so, when it comes to biosecurity and keeping it out, if you're executing on all of your other things that would keep PERS and flu out, you will be successful in keeping mycoplasma out. Now, on the flip side, the best way to move mycoplasma into your herd is on your replacement animals. Um, so that's where I would say that's where the real important change comes on keeping those birds that are negative, negative long-term, is testing in your gills. Um, the standard used to be ELISA's. Uh, we have moved again to straight up tracheal bronchial swabs in all of our animals. Um, and we have actually caught one lateral break in finishing by doing that um, before we were moving it into a sow herd. Um, again, very mm -hmm. rare lateral break, but testing in your replacement animals is absolutely critical. Um, and even doing a laryngeal swab, you're going to lose on a certain number of days. Um, and mycoplasma does not move through a GDU, for example, at, at the rate that PERS would. And so getting that wide, broad spread testing and getting detection as soon as possible so you can catch that movement, that's how you don't move it into the herd that you just spent all that money on eliminating it from. Mm -hmm. I think that diagnostics in the gills, make sure that they're negative before they come in. Absolutely. As long as you're executing on the other biosecurity components, it's pretty unlikely you're going to move something in. Um, for example, on a fomite, if you move it into your herds, it's typically been on gilts. Um, or I, I think everyone also needs to understand that if you completed an elimination um, within those 12 months post-elimination, even up to 18, you may still have those herds fall off. And it wasn't necessarily a lateral break. It was a failure to eliminate. And it just took you that long to detect the bug and for it to spread through your herd again. All right. Well, pretty good, uh, good discussion. Just a couple quick questions here before we, we, we move on to the final page. Your opinion on uh, use of either processing fluids or oral fluids for mycoplasma high pneumonia. Different people have different perspectives on this. Be curious to, 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 to learn what you, what you think. Sure, from a, so let's take oral fluids question first. From an oral fluids perspective, um, it's an okay screening tool. If you're positive on oral fluids, you know you have a problem. Um, but its ability to detect it uh, both from a rapid standpoint as well as to detect a low prevalence is not good. Um, so we will use it to go screen a finisher and a flow, for example, but yep, if you're positive mm -hmm. on fluid fluids, oh boy, you're definitely positive, but if you're negative, it doesn't mean a whole lot. So I'd correlate mm -hmm. it kind of to a, an ELISA test that it's, it, you know, it has its place and its tool from a screening perspective, but we don't use it very heavily because we're typically trying to catch things before you have a very high prevalence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From, a, uh, from a processing fluid standpoint, um, we really have not utilized it very much. Um, again, we, we've really gone to mostly tracheobronchial swabs when we're trying to detect. Um, it is useful from a standpoint that, again, if you have a herd that should be flat negative and you shouldn't find anything there, um, uh, yes, if you're positive, then you need to start looking. 
um, and determining what's going on because you shouldn't find it. Um, but again, the, the sensitivity of an ability to pick up a low level and a prevalence and as well as timing of infection, I don't feel very strongly about that today. I would, would love to employ it because it's easier, much easier than doing a tracheal bronchial swab, but boy, it just doesn't seem to get us the level of detection that we need. So take home bean, if I understand correctly, those are both population-based uh, monitoring, uh, monitoring strategies for mycoplasma. They have low sensitivity, so perhaps they're good for screening. If you detect, oh, you, you, you're better dive deeper, right? If it's just use them as a initial kind of screening Agree. Screening yeah. program. A very mm -hmm. good initial okay. screening to say, yep, check the box. I have a problem. Okay, now we have to go understand the problem a little bit deeper. Um, don't have high expectations that if there's a low prevalence, you may find it. And negative doesn't necessarily mean that you're not, it, negative doesn't mean a true negative on those tests. You need to go look deeper if, if you are negative and you're still questioning. All right. Thank you. What a great discussion. We, we do need we do need to move on to the, to the final page, which is about disease diagnosis. And uh, long story short here, Giovanni Edison, is that uh, there is no signals, no increased detection of any specific pathogen or any specific disease syndrome. Uh, and, the, and the first continues to lead the respiratory cases with 18% of the, of the diagnosis there. The rotavirus is uh, leading the enteric cases and the uh, streptosuis is leading the nervous system cases. Any, anything else to point on this, uh, this is diagnosis page? No, we don't have anything else to point out here. All right, that was about it that we have today. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Dr. Melissa Hinge for joining us for this discussion. And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.